as you return to your seats, would you take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Romans? And excuse me, I've been battling some allergy issues uh, this week. Um, today is, uh, brings us to our last, our 44 of 44 uh, in a series through the book of Romans. So our text this morning is the very last chapter, Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> and in a second, uh, you're going to hear the reading of this text. And I'm going to pray for the Lord's grace, both for my voice and because of the names uh, in the text. So I've, I've read over it numerous times. I've listened to online reading of this text and I assure you, I'm still going to struggle. So, with that said, if you picked up one of the Red Bibles, page 950 is Romans 16. And if you're able, one more time, I want to invite you, if you would, stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Hear the reading of God's word. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet all the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epineus, who, for the, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Apliatus, we'll say, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my fellow, greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Narcissus, rather. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphina and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Perses, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus. Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel 
and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And thus we've heard the reading of the entire book of Romans. Would you hear it? Bow with me now as we pray. Father, help me this morning, even in my weakness, my inability to speak clearly and feeling just my own weakness from allergies and stuffy-headedness. And Father, um, I just want to thank you for it because every time that one stands to preach, we stand to preach in our own weakness. And sometimes it's far from us to feel that. So thank you for that. But Lord, also as a congregation for all of us, Lord, there's a reason this scripture speaks of you giving ears to hear and eyes to see. It's because we're always dependent on your grace. So would you now open our eyes and open our ears, open our hearts, our minds, help us to see your word and hear it, to understand it and to love it, and then to live it out. Lord, you've worked mightily through us. Even as we've worked through this book, would you continue to work mightily through the preaching of your word today? May it be a demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I've noted, today is the last in our series through the book of Romans. It is 44 of 44, as your bulletin says. I began this series um, a a while back, uh, last April, We begin uh, the series, and so now here we are about 15 months later uh, finishing it. I'm getting a good bit of feedback up here, um, Jameson or whoever's over that thinks. Um, That was real subtle, wasn't it? Um, Now, one of my fears, anytime I take something like 44 messages, or as we did through the book of Matthew previous to this, 52 messages to work through the book, one of my fears uh, when I take that long to work through a book is that if you were asked as a congregation, what is the book of Romans about? You might struggle. Now, that can sound a bit weird. Why in the world would we struggle? I mean, we've spent the last 15 months, 44 messages, working through this book. Why would it be hard for us to discern the the message of the book? But if you've ever heard the phrase, uh, missing the forest for the trees... I I think it may make sense to you. Sometimes one of the real advantages of working through a book of the Bible at a very detailed level is you get to pay attention to the details of the text. It's like getting in the middle of the forest and looking at one particular tree at a time or maybe even a branch on a particular tree at a time. Um, But but sometimes when doing that, though you get to look at the details, it's, it's hard to step back. And get a, a view of the whole. What, what is the book of Romans about? For this reason, this is why I, when I approach books of the Bible, sometimes I'll preach through a book of the Bible at, in my own mind, what I call an A, B, or C level outline. You can think of a, a C level outline being a very detailed outline like we've done with Romans. 44 messages through this book that only has 16 chapters. And An A level outline, you might think of it as a higher altitude look at the book. Uh, we're going to start, I'm going to start this next week. If, you, if you've only visited with us for the last two years, you, you might not be accustomed to this, but we've done this quite a bit as we preach through the entire canon. 
Joshua has 24 chapters. I'm going to preach it in four messages. My, my first message through the book of Joshua next week is going to be chapters 1 through 5. And my aim is the same as if it were Joshua 1, verses 1 through 5. I want to make the point or points of the biblical text the point or points of my sermon and draw it from there and show that to you in the text. And one of the advantages of A-level outlines is you get a look at the broad structure of the book. I think you're more easily able to answer, what is this book about? Because you get to look at it broadly speaking. There are, of course, disadvantages to that. You do miss some of the details of the text. But one of the reasons that I found myself a bit more encouraged as we end our study this week in thinking, I think one of the things that alleviates my fear that we might miss some of these broad strokes through the book of Romans through our very detailed look is actually this last chapter of the book of Romans. I found myself very thankful that Paul ends this book, this letter, with this chapter. Now, at first you may think, why is that the case? After all, as I've demonstrated, a bunch of hard names that I struggle to read, uh, it's, it's full of just greetings, of final instructions, of a doxology. This might be the kind of text you look at and you say, uh, it, it's just worth skipping over. After you get to, the, get to the end of the good stuff of Romans 15, Paul gives us just final words, final greetings in Romans 16. You're kind of free to skip over that. But I think what you find as you begin to look into this chapter is that many of the themes that Paul has made central through the first 15 chapters of this book of Romans, he brings back up now. So in some sense, Romans 16 is a helpful review. That's why I've, I, I've titled the sermon in your bulletin, Final Words and Helpful Reminders. So what I want to do this morning is just draw from this chapter what I hope will be, if you've been here through the entire study, just some helpful reminders. If this is your first study, your first Sunday, rather, to be with us, it's, it's a good Sunday. Even though we're concluding our study through this book, this will be, uh, in a sense, getting you uh, exposure to the entire book because these are some themes that Paul's been bringing up throughout the book. And so what I want to do this morning is just note these helpful reminders that Paul gives us in the last chapter of the book of Romans, and hopefully for you, they're things that you're very familiar with as we've gone throughout the book. The first of these I want to note is this. Our faith in Christ makes us beloved family members through our union with Christ. I'm going to flesh this out in parts, but let me just say it all together here. Our faith in Christ makes us beloved family members through our union with Christ. As you've noted, most of our text this morning is made up of a collection of greetings. Paul begins uh, the chapter by commending and asking them to welcome uh, one whom uh, is named Phoebe. Asked her to welcome, asked, asked them to welcome uh, Phoebe, who probably was delivering the letter of the Romans to the Romans. And then verses 3 through 16 are 14 verses just that are full of greetings. Greet so-and-so and so-and-so. Greet those who meet in this, the church that gathers in this person's house. Meet the people that gather over here. Um, in fact, in 14 verses, verse 3 through 16, Paul uses the word greet 14 times. It's hard to miss the emphasis of what he is doing. And then in verse 16, he concludes, the very last line of verse 16, 
all the churches of Christ greet you. So not only is he sending greetings to individuals in the church of Rome, some that he would have known well, others that he might have known of, and he's just sending word of greeting to them. But he also says, now all the churches greet you. And then in verses 21 through 23, he he names specific individuals. Timothy, who was with him, an individual. Tertius, whom Paul has probably been dictating the letter of Romans to, and Tertius has been writing it down. These individuals send their greetings. So it's just full of greetings. So what do we do with that? What do you do with a section like that? It's, it's kind of one of those demoralizing things, right? If you're doing your, your you know, one-year Bible reading and your reading for that day is Romans 16, 1 through 16. Great. Should I write some notes to people this morning, right? Well, I think the real reminder of this 16th chapter, one of them, is that it's a reminder that our faith in Christ makes us beloved family members through our union with Christ. Let me tell you why I say that. First of all, note the description that he gives of Phoebe. Verse 1, I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. And then look at the very last greeting in verse 23. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cortus, greet you. So he begins with a note about our sister, Phoebe, and then ends with a note about our brother, Cortus. Now, Paul did not write that because it just so happened that he was biologically related to all the Roman believers, and they also were related related to Phoebe and Cortus. That's not what's going on. Rather, Paul is recognizing something that Jesus made very clear in his own ministry. We've referenced this many times, you know it well, Matthew chapter 12. You remember the scene. Jesus is ministering and some individuals come to him and they say to him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here to see you. And Jesus references with his hand, he points to his disciples and he says of them in Matthew 12, 49 through 50, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, our shared faith in Christ makes us family. That's what Paul is recognizing. That's why he can call one that he is biologically unrelated to, Phoebe, his sister. Or Cordus, one he's not biologically related to, his brother. Or he even says in the middle of our text, verse 13, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. It's because Paul recognizes that when we together have shared faith in Jesus Christ, it makes us family. And he picks that up from Jesus himself. But we can actually say more than that. We can say that the reason that we are family united together is through our union with Christ. Now, if you could get past me stumbling over all the names of those first 16 verses, one of the things that you would have noticed is how many times Paul uses the phrase, in the Lord, or in Christ. Look at uh, verse 2. That you may welcome her, welcome Phoebe, that you may welcome her in the Lord. Verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers, in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were 
in Christ before me. Now, I could keep on reading. There are five more occasions throughout those first 16 verses where Paul uses the phrase, in the Lord, or in Christ, or in Christ Jesus. And the reason that Paul uses that phrase over and over and over again is not because in the first century with believers, the filler phrase, the equivalent of uh or um when we're speaking in the first century Christian world was in the Lord or in Christ Jesus. It's not as if Paul's just going, I'm not very creative. I'll just keep using the same phrase again and again. No, no, no. What's going on is Paul is making a point. When he uses the phrase, in the Lord, or in Christ Jesus, it brings us back, you remember, to what he taught us in Romans chapter 5. Do you remember? All of us are in Adam. So when Adam sinned, and brought sin and condemnation into the world, it brought it to all of us. All of us are born with a sinful nature. We do not have to teach one another how to sin. We do it very well. But one of the glorious things is, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. Through union with Christ by faith, everything that Christ receives also comes to us. So as Adam received sin and condemnation and judgment and death, and we all got it, Jesus Christ has merited life and righteousness and justification. And so by faith, we're united with Christ so that what's true of Jesus is true of us as well. That is a blessing. That is our salvation. In fact, you'll remember, I define salvation in the book of Romans as salvation. You want to define it? Salvation is the benefit that we get through our union with Jesus Christ. And so Paul brings it up again because what he's making the point of is this. By faith, we're united with Christ, and that not only has implications for us vertically, I'm united with Christ, therefore I'm declared righteous before God, my Father, but it also has uh, benefits for us horizontally. If you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, then we are also bound to one another, aren't we? This is why we can say our faith in Christ makes us family members through our union with Christ. But I've missed one word, beloved family members. Again, as Paul writes this word, uh, this, these verses rather, this is a word he comes back to again and again and again. Look at verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epanitus, or whatever his name is. Verse 8, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. In fact, he ends verse 16 with another note of, of love, saying greet one another with a holy kiss. Why? Because when each of us places our faith in Jesus Christ and are united with Him and become family members, it's not as if we are family members who are somehow estranged from one another. Sometimes the reference to family cannot feel like a very good reference because your relationships are so strained. But Paul's talking about this in an ideal way. We are family together in the way that family was meant to be, where you're united and bound and they are the people that you love. Now that's been expanded so that we are family with all who have our faith in Christ. In fact, I would say the family we have in Christ is even more long-lasting 
Even our marriages, we prayed this morning for Andrew and Jenny who will take their vows next Saturday in marriage. But one of the things Tom will say as he is performing this wedding is that they are bound till death parts them. But our union in Christ is eternal. And what we hope as well is all of our marriages, our spouses were united in Christ. But, but the practical benefits are this. that as we live as a church, I want you to know that we are living out the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made to his disciples when they said to him, we have left everything to follow you. And he says to them, listen, in this life, you're not going to leave father or mother or brothers or sisters or children or land except that in this life, you'll receive a hundredfold and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, I want to say to the widow here, to the orphan, to the one who is barren or has lost children, to the one who is single and wishes to be married, to the one who is maybe surrounded by people and just feels all alone, to the one who is away from your parents, behold, look around. Behold your fathers and your mothers your brothers and your sisters, yea, and even your children. This is the hundredfold blessing. And I do not say that because we've created this kind of language at Cornerstone Community Church as if we talk about each other as if we're family to try to make it something it's not. No, 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 no. This is the language of the Bible. Our faith in Christ makes us beloved family members through our union with Christ. That's point one. Point number two. The gospel Paul preached and we believe has been the hope of many throughout history. The gospel Paul preached and we believe has been the hope of many throughout history. I simply want to make this point just because of this list of names. I believe, my guess is, that most of us think about facing death at least at times. Maybe some of us do regularly. Maybe uh, even this week I had a a friend of mine who received a diagnosis of a lymphoma. It looks like it's untreatable. It looks like at this point the the medical uh, treatment that they're going to do is simply to try to give him a little bit longer. Death is a reality. For the believer, one of the great things we celebrate is that death is not the last word. If you have your faith in Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross to pay for our sins and was raised from the dead on the third day, the glorious good news of the Bible is this, is that not only are we forgiven of our sins, but at the moment of death, our souls actually part from our bodies and go and dwell with the Lord. That is good news. Paul can speak to the Corinthians saying, I, I, I want to, uh, I, I can leave this tent. He pictures his body as a tent or as clothing. And he says, I, I want to be unclothed and with the Lord. But that's not his final hope. When we say when someone dies and their body's lying in a casket and they say that we're, they're in a better place, that's true. But there's a reason why theologians throughout history call that, your soul being absent from your body, the intermediate state. That it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, but it's not the best thing. The best thing is going to happen at the resurrection, because here's what's going to happen. Jesus Christ is going to come back. 
And when he comes back, just as his body was raised from the dead that Easter Sunday morning, so our bodies will be raised imperishable and incorruptible and immortal. And they'll be united with our souls. And we as whole persons with resurrected, glorified bodies will dwell with our Lord forever. That is the Christian hope. That's the reason why we can face death with confidence. But my guess is that if you're a believer attempting to trust in that hope, that the enemy has attacked you much. He doesn't delight in us resting in that hope. And, and no doubt the enemy has tried to undermine your faith at every turn, probably saying things like the very words I said this morning. Doesn't that sound crazy? Doesn't it sound crazy to hope in the message of God the Son taking on flesh and living and dying and being raised? You know, one of the weapons we have against the enemy when he brings those attacks against us is we can point to a great cloud of witnesses. We are not the first who have hoped in this gospel and found it strengthening and sustaining all the way to the end. I shared with you, I think, recently, and I can't remember who I've told the whole story to, but my grandmother, the last six or seven years of her life, I've mentioned she she had Alzheimer's. and, And near the end, she got to where she just could not communicate hardly at all Except this, in the last days of her life, the phrase that she repeated again and again was, come, Lord Jesus. I've known for a long time that I was supposed to preach her funeral. In fact, several years ago, just between me and you, this was the context of it. We were listening to a funeral, and she was saying to me, I don't think this guy's doing a very good job. (laughs) And she said, so I don't know who's going to do mine. Would you do it? And I thought, well, only because you're not going to be around to critique me, you know? Uh, So I did. From that point on, I knew I was going to do a funeral. I knew when Alzheimer's came and she began to suffer through it, I needed to start preparing. I actually didn't sit down and start writing, although I knew the day was coming uh, until the very end. But there would be many times that I would be mowing or just reading my Bible or something and thinking about this, and it would come to mind. And I remember one day reading Isaiah 46, verse 4, and the Lord says this, to his people Israel, but I think it's very applicable to all of his children. He says, even to your old age, I'm he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. And, and the thing that hit me when I read that verse is that when the Lord makes those kinds of promises to his children, when he made that promise to my grandmother, he knew what old age and gray hairs would mean for her. He knew for her it would mean she would likely forget about everything that she once held dear. By the end, she couldn't recognize any of us. I don't even think my mom, maybe here and there she would recognize her. But when she said in those final days, come Lord Jesus, and she kept repeating it, I think that was the Lord just giving us a glimpse into something. I think it was his way of saying, see, I've had her. All these years when she was forgetting everything, I wasn't forgetting her. And he strengthened her and he sustained her to the end, even when everything about her body was wasting away. Her name was Betty. For me, I called her Granny. Granny is one of those individuals I can just add to the list of the number of witnesses that I can say believed this hope of the gospel and found it sustaining even to the end. You know what names you can add to Betty? I'll give you some. Paul. Phoebe, Prisca, Aquila, Julia, Hermes, Petrobus, Tertius, Gaius, Philologus, and I didn't include all the ones I couldn't pronounce. 
but there are a bunch of them. And they could tell their own stories. And we could tell their own stories if we knew them. But all of this to say, brothers and sisters, what we've sung this morning about by we walk by faith and not by sight, but we mention that there have been many who have come before us. Listen, the gospel hope that you hold to, believing it is sufficient even in the face of death, is sufficient. And not only do we have the Bible, which is our main foundation, telling us that, but we have a great cloud of witnesses who say, keep walking by faith. He will strengthen you until the end. The gospel Paul preached, and we believe, has been the hope of many throughout history. A third reminder. There will always be enemies of this gospel until Satan is crushed under our feet. There will always be enemies of this gospel until Satan is crushed under our feet. After reminding us of all of these that they walk with, brothers and sisters, family in Jesus Christ, whom they love and who are who have love for them, Paul mentions in verses 17 through 19 that there are others out there as well, and these who are enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ, who seek to disrupt and overthrow the gospel and cause division. He writes in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the, gospel, to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul reminds them in these last bit that the doctrine that he has taught them, what we've seen throughout the book of Romans, the, the gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and on and on and on. He says, listen, there are going to be individuals who are going to come and they're going to speak contrary to this doctrine. And what Paul says there is true of every day and every age until the end. Just as there will always be beloved family members, others who place their faith in Jesus Christ, so there will be enemies of Christ until the end. So I just don't want us to be under the delusion of thinking that as we live the Christian life, even as a church together, that it's all going to be roses and lilies. It's not. We have to be on guard and, and, and be willing to, to divide against, to, to, as Paul says, avoid Individuals who would speak against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you've known, and, and no doubt many have said throughout the history, sometimes opponents of the gospel come in very overt, heavy-handed ways. Diocletian was a Roman emperor in the 4th century who oversaw the murder and persecution of hundreds of believers. Sometimes the enemies of Christ look like that. But Paul mentioned this in, in this text that many are going to be led away by their smooth talk and flattery. In other words, some enemies of the gospel are going to be the most pleasant, nicest people you're ever going to meet. They simply speak against the doctrine that you've been taught in this book. And so hold fast. I'll just tell you very simply, this is one reason why we pray the gospel and speak the gospel and read the gospel and sing the gospel and come to the table and remember the gospel Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Because this is our hope, and there are always enemies to attack it. And so, hold fast to it. But, I said there will be enemies, there will be enemies until a certain day. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
Do you remember the first explicit promise of the gospel in the Bible, Genesis 3.15? The man and the woman had sinned. They were under condemnation. And God spoke to the serpent, and he said, listen, the seed of the woman is going to come, and he's going to crush your head. What Paul wants us to know in Romans 16.20 is that on the cross, Jesus dealt the fatal blow to Satan, and at the resurrection, when Christ returns, he will fully and finally put him away. But Paul wants us to know Jesus crushing Satan's head has impact for us. It's as if Satan himself is going to be crushed under our feet as well. In essence, Paul is reminding us in this final chapter, there's coming a day when you will not have to worry anymore about Satan or sin or death. You'll not have to worry about any more enemies of the cross or enemies of the gospel, but until that day, we'll face them. Reminder number four. Though we're justified by faith alone, faith and obedience are always connected. Though we're justified by faith alone, faith and obedience are always connected. Last April... I preached number two of 44 in our series, The Romans. My text that day started with Romans 1, verse 8. I'm going to read to you that verse. Notice what Paul says he thanks God for. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I said at that time, the fact that these Roman believers had faith In the gospel was spreading. People were saying, listen, there are believers in Rome. The faith they had in the gospel was well known throughout the whole known world. Look at what Paul says this morning. Romans chapter 16, verse 19. For your obedience is known to all. Well, hold on a second, Paul. Which is it? You started by saying it was their faith that was known, and now you're ending this letter saying their obedience is known to all. So is it their faith that's known to all or their obedience that is known to all? And I think Paul's answer would be yes. Because faith and obedience are inseparable realities. You remember the first five chapters of the book of Romans. We're just stressing. You you might have even got tired of it. The fact that we're justified by faith alone. My righteous standing and your righteous standing before God are not dependent on the works that we've done. We will not stand on the day of judgment and our plea be, look what we've done. Our righteousness before God is dependent 100% on the absolute and finished work of Jesus Christ who lived and who died and who was raised. That's why the good news is, because of what Christ has done, you and I merely turn from our sins, turn from self-reliance, and place our faith in Christ and are saved. We are saved by faith, not by works. But you'll remember in chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, Paul stressed the fact that we're not bound to sin, that by the Spirit of God living in us, we are free to carry out a life of good works. Because what Paul was saying to them is this, though you're justified by faith alone, justifying faith never comes alone. Justifying faith will show itself in a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why even in our text this morning, in this glorious doxology, Verses 25 through 27. 
Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, uh, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a reason why Paul feels comfortable using the phrase, the obedience of faith. Because if you have obedience, if you have faith, it will show itself in obedience. This was James' point in his gospel. James isn't against Paul. Remember the point that James was making was, yes, Abraham's justified by faith. That's Genesis 15, 6. He was declared righteous before God by his faith alone. But how was he vindicated? How was that faith shown among men? Well, it was, his faith was vindicated when God commanded him to sacrifice his son Isaac, and Abraham did it. Although God stopped him at the end, Abraham was willing to do it, right? So he was vindicated. His faith was justified by his works. In other words, Abraham believed God, and the way we know for sure he believed God is because when God told him to do a task that seemed almost impossible, he willingly did it. It would be like you boasting that you believe you can jump off the highest building in the world and fly. And we all said, well, get up on the roof and jump off. And you go, no way. We would say, you really don't believe it, do you? How do we know Abraham really believed? Because he was willing to do the work. His faith showed itself in obedience. Obedience is the fruit of faith. This is why there's no contradiction for us to preach Sunday after Sunday that we are justified by faith alone. But then say to someone, if you're professing faith in Christ and you won't turn from your sin, you may well not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that person says, but we are justified by faith alone, we would say, yes, but justifying faith never comes alone. It produces obedience Though we're justified by faith alone, faith and obedience are always connected. And then finally, just a brief reminder, our hope of eternity is sure and certain. Our hope of eternity is sure and certain. It's fun to read verse 20, isn't it? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul did not write that because he was under the delusion that the Lord promised he would come back in his lifetime. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later and the Lord has not returned. Satan has not been fully and finally crushed at the resurrection. But Paul wasn't wrong. When he says in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, what he means is that everything necessary for the Lord to crush Satan fully and finally at the resurrection has all been put behind us. In other words, at any moment, the Lord could come. At any moment, death will finally be defeated. At any moment, Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire. So it could happen in one sense today. At any moment, we wait for it to happen. Or it may be another 50 years, another 100 years, another 1,000 or thousands of years. But what Paul reminds us at the end in verse 25 is that the one who has fulfilled his promise of bringing Jesus Christ is able to strengthen you. He's able to give you the strength to endure until that day, whether it is this day or a decade or a hundred years from now. And so as we conclude our study through the book of Romans, 
We conclude this study being reminded that our justification by faith brings obedience and that that obedience we get to live out together as a family, a family united in Christ, a family who loves one another, a family who will always have enemies and yet continue to move forward preaching the gospel, and a family who knows that our hope in eternity is sure and certain. Whether the Lord comes and takes us at our death or at his resurrection, we are still alive and changed in an instant. Our eternity, our hope is sure and certain. And one of the reasons that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us this meal this bread and this cup to proclaim his death is because every time we eat this meal, we echo this doxology, that this revelation, this mystery, this promise that God made in the Old Testament that he fulfilled in Jesus Christ, eating this bread and drinking from this cup, remembering Christ's body and remembering his blood is a reminder to us that God fulfills his promises. And if he has fulfilled this promise, he will fulfill the promise to come get us. So if you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him, the one who lived and died and was raised. You can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you want to talk to me or one of your neighbors after the service, we would love to talk to you. If you and then I want to tell you as well, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, make it known by being baptized. This is not anything we've come up with. This is the Bible. The way that you publicly and visibly make known that you've been united with Jesus by faith, the one who lived and died and was raised, was through the visible putting down in water and coming back up to show that I've been united with one who had died and was buried and rose again. Again, if you want to talk to me or one of your neighbors after the service, we'd love to talk to you. If you are a believer this morning, place your faith in Jesus Christ, you professed your faith through baptism, you're a member of a gospel-preaching church in good standing, you've not been disciplined from that church, then in a minute, we're going to pass around the bread and the cup. And I want to invite you to take that with us. We'll eat all together. We'll drink all together in union, remembering our unity and the fact that we're family in Christ. But before we do that, we're going to take a moment of silence. That moment of silence is going to let the ushers come forward, the musicians come forward, get in place. But it's also just going to allow us to just have a moment of silence before the Lord. To remember, maybe to take a time of prayer and asking the Lord for strength to live out a response to this word in a way that's pleasing to him. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the